This morning I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You know, at, at a very young age, my parents always instructed us on the importance of work. And so uh, very early, as a young kid, we had this chart of chores that we had to deal with before we could ever move to fun times. And it would always have Monday through Friday. And all of us were tasked to do something, whether it's clean a bathroom, vacuum a floor, straighten a room. And, and uh, they gave us an allowance. I'd say it was a pittance. But uh, they, they did give us some money for that. But they were trying to inculcate in us this value of work. It was soon after that I took on a paper route and had to make more money then when I was 10, 11, and 12. And then I worked through high school at a gas station and a grocery store and sports it's just all these different jobs. And then in college, I, I bus tables for a sorority. That might not have simply been for financial motivation. But, and, and, but I, then I waited tables through college, and then I graduated and started working at Westinghouse. And, uh, and I've been working since. And I have to just disclose to you that I didn't understand uh, the nature of work for the bulk of my career. I didn't fully understand it. I, I, I was more along with Mark Twain. You know, Mark Twain said that work is a necessary evil to be avoided. And, uh, or, you know, the uh, nine to five, what a way to make a living. I just thought it was a way to survive. That's all it was. It was working for the weekend. And, uh, you know, all this kind of, of a failure to understand the nature of work. Do you think you understand why you're called to work? Is the question even important to you? Uh, I think it should be. At a minimum, you're going to spend a third of your adult life working, doing something. God does speak to it, actually. Uh, many of us separate work and worship, and yet God brings them together for us. He, he kind of helps us to see that He has designed us, men and women, uh, to work. And this is what we see in the text here today, a continuation of what we've been looking at. You know, if you think about this book of First Timothy, it's very logical. I mean, it's very helpful. He's instructing the church. He's telling Timothy, this is what you need to teach the church. This is how they ought to behave as the household of God. Uh, you know, Paul loves this church. He planted it, Ephesians. Uh, in the book of Acts 18, he, he commissions the elders in chapter 20. He loves this church, and, and he wants them to walk in a manner that is in accordance with how the household of God ought to behave. But Paul doesn't just give us instructions so we can just march in line, but he wants the church to fulfill its purpose, which is to display God's wisdom. That's what you find in Ephesians chapter 3, 10 and 11, that God has raised up, he's created the church, so that the world, the broken, fractured world in which we live, are going to see redeemed individuals living in accordance with God's word so that we might reflect God to the world. 
that we might be, as the Puritans would say, we'd be an outpost of heaven. So they would see us and get at least an imperfect, but a good picture of who God is. And that's why he's giving us these instructions. And that's why we, you know, at the end of the verse, he says, teach and urge these things. You know, I'm supposed to teach you these things. I'm supposed to urge you these things so that we can walk out the very purpose of the church. It's not just trying to be here on Sunday morning, but we're trying to be instructed as to how ought we to behave in the household of God so that people might see the greatness and the glory of God. And that's why we see this household code. So we've been looking at chapter 5 all the way here in chapter 6 through 2. It's called the household code because God is giving us instruction through the Apostle Paul on how we ought to behave as the family of God. And, and you know what we saw back in verses 1 and 2, that we're to honor one another. Those who are older than us, singles, the uh, different genders, married, we're to honor one another with respect and purity. We saw in chapter 5, 3 to 16, how we honor those who are widows or those who are struggling in life. Those who have unique needs, we're to honor them, even provide for them. Then you saw last week in chapter 5, 17 to 25, how the members are to honor the elders who rule well. That This is a call. Again, honor being the thread throughout the whole. And now we get here to chapter 6 and how slaves are to deal with masters. And what do we find? Honor again. Honor again. Now, you may not realize this, but the early church was loaded with slaves. They heard this message of the gospel, freedom from sin, and they came in droves to the church. We know this because of how often Paul references slaves in his letters. In seven different letters, one in 1 Peter, but seven different letters, he mentions how slaves ought to behave. We see it in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. We see it in Titus. We see it in Philemon. We see it in 1 Peter. He's giving instructions because there were so many of them. And the pressing question was, now that these slaves have a heavenly master, do I have to serve my earthly master? Do I have to treat my earthly master as a, as, as a lord, as a master, as an owner? Do I, have to, do I have to respond in that way? or Because now I have a heavenly master. Now I'm free. And Paul's speaking. He says, yes, work as unto God. Work as an act of worship. Work as a way of honoring them by honoring God. And that's what we're going to find here. But before I move to looking at this in the context of work, I, I want to kind of just touch on slavery for a minute because this is a, a difficult passage. People often read this and wonder, why didn't Paul say something more definitive against slavery? And I just want you to see, we are dealing with slavery, so I don't want to gloss over that, right? You see that it's a bondservant. That word's translated. It can be doulos, can be translated bondservant or slave. And we see that probably in the, the same thing in many ways we know it's slavery because it's under the yoke. A yoke was this wooden instrument used for animals, right, to keep them plowing the field. Whenever it's used in Scripture uh, toward humans, it's always speaking to an oppressive regime. And, and we know that the Scripture is antithetical to slavery. We know that it's antithetical to man-stealing, to kidnapping, to slavery. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And if we all bear, whether believer or unbeliever, we all bear the image of God. We are all owned by God. And so there's to be no ownership of others. 
So the Bible speaks clearly to that. The Bible also speaks clearly to the fact that we are about human flourishing, that God has created us that we might flourish and be fruitful and multiply and grow and develop his creation, displaying his glory, and slavery comes directly against that. Now, before I try to answer the question, why doesn't Paul speak definitively against slavery, I want to remind you that there were some differences that need to be mentioned between a first and second century slavery and the slavery that we think of in this country. And, and the differences were this, that the key difference is that the slavery of this day was not based on race, primarily. It was a result of war, it was, it was a result of poverty, it was a result of other social circumstances. Some people entered slavery because they wanted economic stability. <clears throat> they would go to a powerful landowner and sell themselves to them to work, that way to have a house and to have a clothing and have food and have income. Others sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. If a debt was accrued with an owner, that he would give himself over to the owner for a year. Uh, the slavery was different in terms of there were certain freedoms, there were certain mobilities. Uh, slaves in this first and second century, there were managers, there were clerks, there were farmers, there were soldiers, there were teachers. They even worked in lower forms of government. And yet, I want to make sure you understand, slavery is still slavery. I mean, I mean, you are being owned by another, or your life is being directed by another. So I don't want to minimize it. I'm just trying to show you that there were significant differences between the two. So the question is then, why didn't Paul say it? Why didn't he say, I prohibit all slavery? All slaves should be free. <clears throat> well, it's a hard question. It's a hard question to answer. Uh, a couple responses would be, uh, first, that you know, to just declare them free or to just call for them to revolt for freedom, what would they do? Uh, there could have been, according to some estimates, up to 85% of Rome and Italy that were slaves. Where would they go? What would they eat? How would they provide? So the, there's just the logistical issue. Uh, secondly, you'd have the wrath of Rome come right down on them, and the military might of Rome fall upon them. Uh, but there's something more significant that I think gets at why he didn't just prohibit slavery. He's not condoning it, what he's showing us is that revolutions don't change men. Proclamations don't change men. We see that in the French Revolution. People who initiated the French Revolution, they were killed by the French Revolution. So revolutions don't change us. Paul knew that it was only the gospel applied by the Spirit of God that would change the heart of man, that would move them away from wanting to find value in the owning of other human beings. It's the power of the gospel reminding us of the service that Jesus rendered that would change our understanding. So Paul's writing these letters to the churches all in that Asia Minor, that Mediterranean basin, getting in their minds. No, the gospel is what changes, not social revolutions. So Miroslav Volf was a there is a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale, and he wrote these words. He says, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run 
much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed, worship of a crucified God, is eminently a political act. It subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. Think about that with me. As people are coming to faith, and they're believing in a God who would take on flesh and dwell among us and lay down his life, literally enter the life of a slave to save us. He is the redeemer of slavery. To follow a crucified Savior is to put down this theology of dominion. We're going to revolutionize. We're going to make change. We're going to change social structures. No, no, no. It's through the humility of a, of a crucified Savior that would change our understanding of what it means about the ugliness of slavery. So, so th that's, that's, I think, getting at the heart of why Paul doesn't just say, you know, in fact, he says that if there is a chance for freedom in 1 Corinthians, then pursue it. But he's helping us live in the context of unjust social systems by the power of the gospel. I think that's what he's driving at here. And I think that's why we can take this text and move to try to understand it now in the context of an employee-employer relationship. It's not a perfect analogy, no doubt. But there are connections that I think will be helpful for us to understand this text as we look at it today. I think what Paul's saying is that we can apply the principles of this, even though we may not have the same slavery and the same cultural context, we can look at this passage and understand better how we ought to work, particularly for unjust or maybe just owners or bosses. So, so two things I want to touch on today. First, it's just the characteristics of godly work will always involve honor. So the characteristics of godly work will always involve honor. And secondly, the motivation, the motivate, how do we do this? Because so many of our bosses are not necessarily honorable. So how do we do this? Well, he shows us secondly, the motivations of godly work, and that will be to honor God, the motivation. So characteristics and motivations. Why do we do what we do? How should we work tomorrow morning? That's in the motivational part of it. So uh, the characteristics. Look with me back at the text that Sarah read. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's a clear command. Let them regard. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And then look at that last, some of the, you know, remember now, your chapters and your verses didn't come to your Bibles till the 16th century and beyond. But teach and urge these things is placed there. Now, where does that go? Should that go with the passage we just read, or should it go forward, or should it do both? Well, probably both. He's, Paul keeps saying, teach and urge these things. These things need to be taught. You know, you read the scriptures, and then you're taught the scriptures so that we can walk in them. So what's he teaching us here? What's he urging us to do here? Well, uh, to honor 
uh, even unbelieving masters or bosses. And I say that because look in verse 2. In verse 2, he specifies that for those who have believing masters, he's saying to these new faith converts who have unbelieving masters, give them all honor, regard them. They may not be honorable, but regard them as worthy of honor. In other words, work diligently, work honestly, work with industry, be punctual. He's speaking to this issue. You know, what they think, what scholarship thinks is that, that when these uh, Christians or when these slaves became Christians, they became more insubordinate. They were thinking, well, I don't have to submit to anybody now because I'm submitting to God. And therefore, it kind of, it kind of twists the relationships. But remember what we've been seeing, that the way we view people is the way we treat people. And he's saying, view them with honor. View them with honor. Work diligently. Don't be insubordinate. Be obedient. Complete the task. Work in a way that would honor God. That's what he's saying to us. But not just to those with unbelieving masters or bosses, but even those with believing. Now, you've got to remember, in the early church, there were both slaves and masters in the same church. We have proof of that. Book of Philemon and Onesimus. It's a slave and, a, and an owner together in the same church. And so some of these Christians were, were worshiping alongside their masters. And they're thinking, well, hold it now. Book of Galatians, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. So, boom, I don't need to respect him at all. And he's saying, no, 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 they're still worthy of your respect. Again, honor is still to take place. Even though there may just be horizontal relationships between us, we're still called to honor one another. It's true, you see here, and I want to press this into your soul, you see that Paul sees a major change in the dynamic of our relationships. We come here from different homes, different families, different backgrounds, and we feel different for one another. Uh, but, but, but he sees us as, he says clearly, he says, let them benefit by your good service because they're believers and beloved. He sees us as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers. He sees clear family dynamic here that we're not just to throw away the good old, hey, brother, or hey, sister. No, he really sees us more intimate than our biological connections. And that, that even though they may be your boss and they may be Christian, you still need to respect them. You still need to work hard. So, so Paul's giving us a clear ethic on work, which is it's marked by honor. And honor is seen by our obedience, by our diligence, by our integrity, by our hard work. Now, this is revolutionary. It, two little verses that are read in just a moment. But do you know what he's, this is a revolution right here. I mean, to honor your boss, to honor the unbeliever. It challenges us on many levels, doesn't it? I mean, it, at least it challenges us on our efforts at work. I mean, so many of us uh, come into work just to get the job done, just to do what I have to do, and then I'm done. I'm out of here. I got my life. And, and, and we walk in a measure of dishonor. And it doesn't have to be workers. It can be students. You know, I'll do the paper you know, two hours before it's due. Uh, I'll prepare for the test the night before the test is to be given. You know, we can be lazy uh, we can be critical of our bosses. Uh, we, we can be gossip 
always chinking at their armor, trying to take them down a notch. I mean, we can show up late, leave early. We can be on Instagram, Facebook. You know, in Ray's elder note to the members of this church, he gave a stat that on, at least according to one survey, that in an eight-hour day for which you're paid for eight hours, the actual output is less than four hours. I mean, that's incredible. But Paul's saying, no, honor means hard work. It means diligence. It means punctuality. doesn't mean we just talk and kind of have collegial converse, conversations for 30 minutes. It could be done in five. So it challenges the way we work, right? Our efforts at work might be a point of repentance for us. Might be a point of reconsidering what does honor look like by the efforts I put forth. Uh, but but it, ch- it also challenges our, our view of work. How do you see work? I mean, do you see it as just a must, like Twain? It's to be avoided? It's a necessary evil? You know, too long, uh, you know, we see this sacred-secular divide. This divide where, you no know, work is what I do to earn a living, and, and sacred work is what I do when I read my Bible and have devotions. That is not a divide you find in Scripture. The Reformation was immensely helpful in kind of retrieving the idea of vocation. Vocation meaning whether you're a a mother or whether you're a a programmer or whether you're a a scientist or whether you're a street sweeper, that, that you're utilizing the gifts of God that he has given to you and the life that he gives to you because every breath is a gift. So you're utilizing his gifts and his life to serve others. You know, this is the whole idea of, at least one of the big ideas that came out of the Reformation, that we want to view work differently. We don't want to view work as a matter of, I just got to do it as part of my life. No, God has created us actually to work in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Here's all the resources, now get at it and cause it to flourish. So it changes our view of work. I want you, when you go to work tomorrow, to not think I'm going to work after my devotion. No, you're going to worship God by honoring the one who work, who, for whom you work, and I'm going to do it in diligence, and I'm going to do it as a way to honor God. Thirdly, I think it, it changes uh, our view of people. right? I mean, we're looking at people now to honor an unbeliever. If they're not worthy of honor, we're to consider them. How? Why? Well, because God has created them in his image. They may not be of the faith. You may not engage in a transcendent relationship with them like you do your brothers and sisters in the church, but they're made in the image of God. And they're given the gifts of God. They're given the grace of God. And and so it honors him as we honor them. It's not affirming them. It's not condoning their behaviors. No, no, no. You, You see in them, they bear the image of God. And so it changes the way. It helps us to not villainize people. When we look at them, no, they bear the stamp of God. And by the way, they will stand before God. He is the judge of all men and women. So they will stand before God. If they're an unjust boss, they will be confronted with that. You don't have to be that judge. And then it also changes our view of authority, doesn't it? When when you think about the authority structures here, you know, we live in a very anti-authoritarian age. It's it, it spiked kind of anti-leader, anti-authoritarian. 
This idea we just don't want to be under authority. It could be probably from COVID, overreach of the government in many people's minds. It could be from governmental hypocrisy, other institutional failures, where we just can't trust them anymore. And so we're almost against authority. Our back kind of bows up when we're told that we have to do things. Well, let me remind you that God has established authority. He has established them even in unjust systems. There's the authority of the citizens to the, to the government. There's the authority of the members to the elders, the children to the parents. There's the authority of the wives to the, to the husbands. You even see it as the planets revolve around the sun. So, so we can't, if you just want to throw out authority, let me encourage you just to take this afternoon and just read George Orwell's Animal Farm. Just, just read that book. It's a very helpful book in seeing that this kind of move away from all authority, the people will be all free and all happy, it just won't work. It's remember who were sitting at the dining room table when they looked in the window. It was the pigs that led the revolt in the first place. It, it just doesn't work. Now, clearly some of you are thinking right now, but what about the unjust boss? I mean, what about the ungodly overreach of government or institution into our lives? What do we do then? Do we just lay down like a doormat and take it? <clears throat> no, this is the need for wisdom, and we've seen that in COVID. This is a difficult situation. How do we respond when we're called? There's two calls on our lives. We're called to obey authority, and yet when authority is moving in an ungodly way, <clears throat> then there is the call for civil disobedience. There's no doubt about that. But boy, the devil's in the details on that one. Because we want to pick it apart very carefully. We want to do it in the counsel of many. Because it's a very difficult thing. It's very natural to us in our broken state to say no to any authority. And yet here, he's telling slaves to treat as worthy of honor unjust masters. Can you believe the way they could have been abused? And yet he says to treat them as worthy of all honor. That it should wake us up like a cup of cold water to the face. It challenges my faith, frankly. It challenges, do I have the capacity to do it? I, I mean, really? I, I'm so quick to move in a self-protective, self-defensive, self-righteous way, and yet you have it here. It, need, this, it needs wisdom. You know, Peter gives us some of this wisdom when he says, servants, <clears throat> bond servants, doulos, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, that's the only way you're going to do it, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That's no credit for that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on in a couple chapters, he says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this is a difficult text, isn't it? I mean, because it's not so clear cut. Now, we don't face near the dilemma, the ethical dilemma that they faced with these pagan, unjust, literal masters. We're talking, in our case, bosses. They don't own us. In this case, they owned them. And yet he's calling them to treat them as worthy of all honor. Is this not a challenge? 
I mean, I haven't done a very good job explaining it. If you're thinking, yeah, that's not a big deal. No, this is a huge deal. And that's why he motivates us. This is a, let's move to part two here. This is why he motivates us. How do we do this? I mean, how are you going to do this tomorrow? Many of you are going to work in a context, in a situation that you dread. You absolutely dread. You don't like it. You don't want to be there. You'd be a thousand other places. You know, or you don't like the people that you're working with. Or you don't like the work that you're doing. Or you don't like the context in which you're working. Or the conditions. So what do we do? Well, look at some of the motivations. He says there at the end of verse 1, he says, he says so that. That's so, when you see a so that, that's really important. He's, giving us the, he's kind of giving us the effect or, or the purpose of it all. He says you are to treat them or regard them as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, one motivation is to honor God. We want to work so as to honor God so that God is not dishonored. You know, the person, think about all the motivations we have at work. I want to raise, I want a promotion, I want more respect. My identity is wrapped up in my job or what I do. I want, I want recognition. I want to climb up the corporate ladder. I want the corner office. I want windows in my office. You know, all the motivations that move us to work. I want greater flexibility. I want greater freedom. I want greater money. And he says, no, we're working to work in a way that God's name is not seen as less. That God's name is honored. We're to work in a way where we're so industrious, we're so honest, we're so faithful, we're so punctual, that we get the job done that they want with excellence where they say, wow, he, it reflects nicely on God. It reflects appropriately on God. And Paul told Titus the same thing. This is how we adorn the gospel. We don't change. We don't make the gospel good. We don't make God prettier or better or more effective. But we do reflect it more in our life. And this is what Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. You keep hearing the same refrain, different letters, different churches in the early church. He says, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. This is showing us what many of the Christian slaves were doing, constantly arguing, taking from the company. But rather, show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God and Savior. By our work, we adorn God. We reveal God. That word adorn comes from cosmeo, comes from cosmetic, kind of to adorn a face. We're adorning God. We're not making him prettier. We're just reflecting it to people. So, so we go to work to honor God. Uh, we strive. We're motivated. I don't like the job. I'm going to do it for the glory of God. I don't really particularly enjoy the people I'm with. I'm going to do it for the glory of God. God is worthy to me more than my distaste in the current situation. Folks, this takes stout faith. Stout faith. But that's one motivation. The second motivation is that it serves Christ. It serves Christ. In other words, in us going to work, we are in effect trying to, treating them worthy of honor. We're trying to serve Christ. Is your boss Christ? No. But, it, but in, in looking to Christ, he's going to benefit. In other words, I'm going to work in a way that I want Christ to be served. Now, Paul says this in Colossians. He says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men 
There you had that motivational change. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Clearly, Paul is trying to pack into the mind of these men and women that when we're working, again, whether it's in the home or outside the home, that we are actually serving Christ. And I think we see that, don't we, in Matthew 25, when he's talking about those servants who, who fed the folks who were hungry and who clothed the folks who were naked and gave water to the folks who were thirsty and visited the folks who were in prison. He said, oh, you were serving me. You were serving me. And he said, no, I, I served Joe. No, when you were serving Joe, you actually were serving me. So, so, so this is another motivation that when we go to work, we're thinking, no, I want to go to serve Christ. Yeah, he's going to benefit by it, no doubt, but that's how I regard him as worthy of all honor. And, and then last, I would say this in terms of motivation. So to honor God, to serve Christ, it, it also promotes the gospel. It promotes the gospel. You can do this even without saying anything initially. And let me explain what I mean. When you consider Jesus Christ, he came in the flesh to serve, right? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus enters slavery to redeem slavery. He, he, he girds himself with a towel. He washes the feet of his disciples. He serves us even by laying down his own life. He, he redeems slavery. He makes a way for us to serve like he serves. So in Philippians chapter 2, we read, starting in verse 4, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, same word in our passage, having been born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see in the gospel, Jesus enters slavery to redeem and to save. Slavery, you know, kind of just the epitome of structural sin. He enters it and saves us from it. And so he makes a way for us now to be servants of all. We follow him in that. And so we now can serve and consider all with honor because we know he has ultimately redeemed it. He's done the change. That even if we have to endure injustice for a season, we will receive a reward as our inheritance because we are serving Christ. This is a beautiful picture that Christians, this is why we're not triumphalistic. We don't hold on to a doctrine of dominion. No, we have a doctrine of humility. And Philippians is a doctrine of humiliation of the Son of Man. Again, there is that wisdom that we need, but let's first get the principle down. So what do we do with this? Uh, what, what should you do tomorrow morning when you're driving to work? I don't have to do this tomorrow because I'm going to take off. But I did it today, and I did. So, so what do you do tomorrow when you go off to work? Well, let me give you a couple takeaways. Number one would be consider repentance. Repentance is a gift to us as Christians. Repentance is a way of clearing the slate with God. I don't mean just throwing up a couple apologies. Hey, God, sorry I didn't do this. You know, you see Brandon, you see others model it for us. When we repent of our sins, we're really taking our souls to task. We're saying, God, forgive me. I have not worked diligently. I haven't worked hard. 
I, I haven't been um, as mindful with the company's supplies as I am with my own personal supplies. I, I'm not posting to work on time. I'm not giving a full day. I am spending more time. You know, millennials get beat up all the time for their work ethic. Uh, but really, it pervades much beyond millennials. It's all of us. We have this career impatience. I want to climb right up the ladder. I don't want to pay the dues. I want to move right on up. We have this need for flexibility. This, uh, I gotta, hey, I've got to be flexible. I've got to be on the move all the time. You know, a lot of the companies are now pandering to us. You know, you can bring your teddy bear if you want to work. You get to wear your pajamas at some places. They tend to be more computer programming places, I think. But, but no, no personal slight there. But, but, but we're pandering to people as opposed to, you know, we're, we're getting soft in terms of a work ethic that I think is called for here. We might want to repent of that and ask God to help us. And we might need to repent to our bosses or our co-workers when we're not bringing our part of the collective work. We rely on them. Uh, uh, secondly, I would say, let's try to reflect God. Think about it. Uh, consider in your mind that preach through a work ethic. We do need to preach the gospel, but let's show them the gospel first and then preach the gospel. Let, let's be mindful of what people are taking away. about the, How would they commend God uh, based upon the way I work, the attitudes, the integrity? The tr let's be ruthless in our honesty. Let's be ruthless in our diligence, and not for our advancements that we commend God to people. Uh, let's also serve for the good. Thirdly, serve for the good of others, the good of your boss, you know, the one that you're reporting to, the, the one that you're, you're employed by. You know, what would make them honored? How, how would our work produce honor? For them, but not just the boss, the end user. So if you're, you know, if you're writing, you know, if you're writing code, or if you're preparing food, or if you're doing some other task, what's the end user? That's why Dorothy Sayers would say, if you're a carpenter, make good tables, make a good sturdy table. That 30 years from now, the thing is still sturdy and it's still standing. You know, let the end user be happy over your work. This is how we can make it an act of worship. And work as well, working with industry, produces profit. And it allows you the ability to then help people who cannot work. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 4.28. He says, let the chief, excuse me, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with people in need. So we work with industry, not just to make ends meet, but to make extra, to give extra away. And, and then, and I don't know where we are on the numbers, four maybe or five, but, but I, I would say it be, be thankful over the job you have. Many of you have jobs you love, and I would pray that you don't slip into idolatry. But if you have a job, like most people, that you maybe don't love, or it has parts that you don't love, thank them for the job. Thank them for the ability to do it. Thank them for the gifts and the talents, the, the opportunity that you have. Let's be a thankful people. You know, in Romans chapter 1, the mark of the unbeliever is this, ingratitude. Let's be grateful, even for the jobs that we have, because we're still getting to use his gifts. We're still getting to worship God in the job. 
And we want to thank him for that. And then, and then last, I would just say pray. You know, pray for your boss. If you have a tough situation, some of you have difficult bosses. They're exacting. They don't ever give a word of encouragement. Boy, you can just turn this whole sermon upside down and use it if you guys are bosses. You know, this is wonderful instruction the same. But a lot of times people don't give any encouragement. You're at work, you do the job, that's what you're supposed to do, that's what you're getting paid to do, that's your encouragement right there. Every time you get a check, you ought to be encouraged. Uh, some bosses are that way. Uh, pray for them, pray for them by name. Uh, pray for the people who are around you. You know, pray not just that you would be doing a good job with excellence, but, but pray for their own souls. A and then display a work ethic that would reflect a, a service work ethic that reflects the service that we've benefited by in Christ. That was, you know, in John 17, 4, he says uh, that I will do the work you gave me. So the, the whole atonement on the cross was a work the Father gave him. He doesn't give us an atoning work. We don't propitiate sin, but we do propagate the gospel by the way we work. So, uh, you know, Scripture is just imminently practical, and yet it's all grounded there at the cross, isn't it? It's all grounded in Christ at the cross, and it gives fuel and life and understanding for everything. So, folks, let's just take a moment and ask God for uh, grace and mercy, conviction perhaps, or strengthening that we might walk uh, that we might behave as a household of God for his glory. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.